start and Gatlin is away well. Usain Bolt trying to come along. Here's Tyson Gay and Asafa Powell. It's Tyson Gay. Here's Blake. Here's Bolt. Usain Bolt explodes. And he's still the king of the hundred. What is up, Sportscasters fans? It is Season 2, Episode 30 of the Sportscasters, August 14th, 2012, here in Buffalo, New York, coming to you after an unplanned one-week hiatus due to my ridiculous stomach (laughs) and its non-cooperation in podcasting. So apologize that we missed you last week, but we're back with a strong show this week. Um, Great guest today, Luke Wynn who we usually talk college basketball with because for a couple of reasons we like to talk college basketball with Luke Wynn. One, he's super talented. Two, he's a really visual sports writer who does great things with his power rankings column. And three, his Luke Wynn at the tournament blog is one of the coolest things on the internet during the NCAA tournament. Well, Luke took his at the tournament blog to the Olympics and every day was blogging on SI.com. Luke win at the Olympics and we're going to talk to Luke about that experience and find out try to get a taste of what it was like to be on the ground in London and what security like was like and what it was like for members of the media and fans and all kinds of great stuff like that with Luke we're also going to talk to our buddy Tass Mellis who's also kind of a basketball guy to us but there was huge news in the NBA this week there was Dwight Howard being traded to the Lakers so we figured we'd reach out to Tass and talk about the Dwight Howard trade and also talk to him, get his perspective on the Olympics and the U.S. triumphing for the second time in a row in Olympic basketball and kind of get his perspective on that and also find out who some of the winners and some of the losers in the NBA offseason have been because we haven't really done much with the NBA offseason since uh, the Heat won the title. And also we're going to have for the second time Ed Sherman, a good friend of ours, a guy who's been in the business forever, has his own website, ShermanReport.com, where he's super kind to the sportscasters. He's going to come on and talk to us a little bit about the controversy surrounding some of the decisions that NBC made in terms of the coverage of the Olympics. We'll also talk a little bit about some of the other stories in sports media. So we have a really busy show. We're also going to do five on fantasy. We got some emails for some of our comparison tiebreakers in fantasy football. We're going to do that in five on fantasy. We're going to update the book club and later we'll do pick four. Before we can do any of that, of course, we're going to start the show with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. You had asked last week, or I shouldn't say that, last time we were on the air. All right, two uh, weeks ago now. If if the Olympics would grab me, you tend to ask that of like the non being a Buffalonian, the big sporting events that get me, our football, everything football and hockey related. So sometimes the other stuff doesn't get me. But uh, you asked about the Olympics, and I have to say, 
one hundred percent. I was I was in fully. Yeah, it was uh, a great Olympics. I, I don't know exactly what it was that drew me to it more than Olympics in the past, but I was one hundred percent all in, and that's with only seeing live events really on the weekend. The rest of the time, I had to watch tape delayed or just watch live events while I was getting dressed for work. But yeah, I don't I don't know what it was, but I I was all in. Well, I think what it was is it was just a great Olympics in the sense that there was really easy storylines to to. To like and, to like yeah. and to get in, into. It was really easy to get into Michael Phelps and his last this and his last that. And would he win a gold? And he got off to kind of a slow start, but then he got right. better as the Olympics went on. And how many golds could he win? And uh, Missy Franklin and you know on the women's swimming side, she was really easy. And Ryan Lochte, who's from near here. And then when it got to running, there was some really – we had had – Alto Bolden on the show, who did the color for that, and Usain Bolt is just unbelievable to watch. Yeah, he's such a likable guy too. Like he's cool. He's, he's cool. Really cool. He has fun with it. He's not. He doesn't. It's hard to make a race where a bunch of guys run in a straight line. I mean, it's exciting because it's fast and it's usually generally kind of close, I guess, because how far can the lead be? But man, he's even in that tight of time, he blows people away. And he's really cool afterward, and he's fun, and he poses, and uh, he stole—not stole, but he took a, a photographer's camera, yeah, and started taking pictures of everybody. And I just saw online before this that that photographer posted those pictures, so you could see the pictures Usain Bolt took. And the you know the women's gymnastics team was awesome, yeah. You know, yeah. So I don't know if it was the thing with—was it just that Team USA did really well this year? The team USA had an excellent Olympics. I mean, led the medal count. And had the most gold medals, but I, I was I was totally sucked in. It, it was phenomenal. Do you ever just look at the medal count and see some of the random countries that won like one medal? <laughs> no, I didn't do that. But I remember during the opening ceremonies, they had the independent athletes, athletes that maybe they had a country that uh, dissolved, or maybe they just didn't. The one player, uh, the one athlete, didn't like. Uh, the politics in his country so he raced independently like kuwait won one bronze medal congratulations kuwait <laughs> saudi arabia won bronze medal congratulations saudi arabia you know who had a terrible terrible olympics it was canada really canada the winners their olympics i suppose i suppose but for a country the size of canada to walk away with one gold Five silver and 12 bronze, that's a disgrace. Yeah. Uh, the host country had a nice showing. Yes, Britain did very well. They had, um, I think they were fourth or fifth in the in the medal count. And their crowd was They were third. Too. Third in the medal count, 29 gold, 17 silvers, 19 bronze. Their, their crowd was really good, too, at all the events. And just a real, real cool Olympics. Uh, people are real quick to beat up NBC for what they did, and I don't know how I would have handled it differently. I guess it's kind of disappointing that every country in the world, except for the United States, saw what we were seeing later on at night. You know, the only big complaints I have about it, well, twofold. One is on the weekends, especially Saturday yeah. and Sunday. You, I think they owed it to us to show us some more live events on the weekends. Sure. Because we're completely programmed to watch live sports on the weekends. And they did show us... And I, when people say they didn't give you live events, there were live events every second. There could be live events, but 
They withheld all the big things like the gymnastics, the swimming, the running. Right. Team sports. You could find all kinds of right. live team sports. You know, water any polo, of the USA basketball handball. games, you yep. could see, you know, handball, yeah, water polo, things like that. And the only other problem is that, like, let's say it was the night Usain Bolt won the 100, and you, you, you accept the fact you have to watch it in prime time, but then they don't show it till 1130. Right. And that was kind of frustrating. And NBC spoiled themselves on a few they occasions. They did do one time. And we might have talked about this, actually. Like, this might have been the last podcast stuff. But, yeah, I'm all in. I can't wait for the Winter Olympics to come up next. Uh, I wonder if we find an Olympics, like maybe the Winter Olympics aren't USA's strength. I wonder if I'm sucked in as much. Is it is it uh, patriotism that got me there, or was it just the stories? Well, what do you think you look back when – Ten years and people say, "Remember the Olympics in London? What what event or events or things or stories will jump out in your mind?" As what will you always? Wow, that's tough because it it's not even one moment. I think it's kind of the. I think to me, it's about Phelps and Bolt. Yeah, that's probably. I, right. I just think that that's what it was. It was about Phelps finishing off the most decorated career of any Olympian ever, and yeah. Bolt just running like proving an, he's the best still. Right? Proving he's the best. Yeah, I mean the gymna- the gymnasts are always a big story in the United States. It seems like when they do well, Gabby Douglas. But yeah, to me, it's just a lot of cool little stories. And everyone loves ripping on the gymnast who's a little spoiled. The I'm not. She's not impressed with the nose picture. I don't. I didn't see that. You haven't seen that one no. of the uh, one of the gymnasts got a a meme made out of her. Got a uh, yeah a meme made out of her. She finished second. And kind of pouted. Oh, the Russian girl? It might have been a Russian girl. Yeah. She kind of pouted on the... Um... <laughs> ah, well, what can you do? Yeah, here she is right here. Here, I'll show it. Michaela Maroney. Oh, that's the uh, that's the United States vault girl. Yeah, Michaela Maroney is not impressed. Is, uh, got it, is a meme. <laughs> Her making this face. Oh, I have seen that. It's everywhere. You know, Michaela's not impressed. Oh, there's girls underneath doing that. Yeah. It's better than the duck face, I guess, the girls do online. So, But, yeah, I, just the whole thing was really well done, and I guess that's uh, a compliment to London more than anything. So good job. I mean, you didn't hear many horror stories about things going wrong. A few technical problems. We talked about the fencing, I believe, last time we were on. But really, Great Olympics. Really cool Olympics. All right, my second thing today is Don and I shared that first thing is, you know, it's not unusual for a Heisman Trophy finalist to not be with his team the next year. You know, because these guys move on to the NFL right. draft. And, but LSU thought for sure that their Heisman Trophy finalist, Mr. Matthew, the Honey Badger, would be back on the team. Tyron Matthew would be back to play another year. Unfortunately, he's been dismissed from the team for breaking school and team rules and because of privacy issues that's really all they can say but most people seem to think it's drugs something to do with breaking team rules involving drugs so the honey badger has been kicked off the team and he's got a couple options from here um he can go play d2 football somewhere like the kid that the rams drafted from florida who was kicked off of florida Mm. He can go play D2 football somewhere. This is not his first incident either. I believe this. he has quite a few of these. Or am I thinking of some other player that got in trouble recently? 
But it seems like Tyron wants to go back to LSU in 2013. So sit out a year and then go back and then play. So Les Miles said this, I'm rooting, certainly I'm rooting for Ty and whatever his future is, but I'm not focused on him. I've got games to play. I've got 104 guys that I have to be ready for. I know this is a very key time in his life, and I hope the decisions that he makes are in his best interest for the long term. We'll help any way we can. Uh, for pressed about the possibility of him returning for the team for the 2013 season, Miles declined. I am not in any way going to speculate. He will not be on the team this year. I guarantee it. That's a fact. I have no idea beyond that. So disappointing because he's exciting exciting to watch play. He finished fifth in Heisman voting last year. He's got a cool nickname like the Honey Badger. And uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at NOLA.com, and they have a thing here that says there's no leeway for judgment calls after Matthew failed multiple tests. So I don't know if he failed multiple tests for one incident. I thought I heard it was a, quite a few. Uh, I don't want to get that wrong. Though, well, so. a team like LSU – doesn't throw their fa- their best player off the team for making one mistake. Right. So, yeah, you don't like to see that, uh, not related to drugs and that type of thing. So hopefully he can – hopefully he gets a wake-up call from this and maybe he can still land on somewhere else. If anything, we know uh, – It's not the last we've seen of him. No. I mean, there's precedent, like I said. The sports world is forgiving. And there's precedent just this past year with a player who was released from Florida – Playing D two and being a second round pick right. by the St. Louis Rams, and being able to continue his football career. So uh, clean up and fly right and all that jazz, and we'll see him. See you later, a honey couple badger. Of years. Yeah. yeah. My number two, the Lakers, not the Brooklyn Nets, as we kind of alluded to at like the why a while back when free agency opened. It, it it's been looking like. Dwight Howard might move to many different teams before yeah, he's yeah. finally moved. Well, Very similar to Rick Nash in the hockey. We already mentioned earlier he went to the Lakers, and we'll talk to Tass later on about that. In a four-team trade where the Lakers received Dwight Howard, Chris Dohan, Earl, and Earl Clark, the Nuggets get Andre Iguodala, mm-hmm. the 76ers get Andrew Bynum and Jason Richardson, and the Magic get a bunch of... Of role players, it looks like. I've never heard of these guys. I'm not a basketball guy, but I don't know who any of these guys are. It says the Magic will also receive a protected first-round pick from each of the other three teams and five overall draft picks. So, boy, is this a rebuilding Protected move. means that if they're lottery picks, they don't get them. Really? Yes. So not that they're protected for the Magic. No. The other. Wow. So it's a really bad trade. And well, you got to figure. Talk about that. you got to figure the Lakers and 76ers aren't going to get lottery picks, right? Probably not. And the Lakers, the, Nuggets, the Lakers, by doing this, have said they don't care about the taxes associated with the luxury oh, and the right. new collective bargaining agreement. They're going to pay. So, yeah, so the, it sounds like uh, Bleacher Report has said that they think the 76ers got the best of this deal. Oh, come on. How did anyone but the Lakers <laughs> get the best of the deal? I don't know. They the love... Lakers made this deal, and they didn't have to give up Paul Gasol. Yeah. And they, had, they upgraded at center where they had Andrew Bynum. They updated... They upgrade that position. They still have Gasol. So they you think added Nash? You think uh, they're the favorites to win the whole thing? You think Patrick Britton from the Bleacher Report is just writing things to be controversial? Yeah, I think he wanted to make his bosses at Time Warner impressed, since that site was just sold for like two hundred million dollars. <laughs> 
But yeah, Dwight Howard, uh, I heard people talking about this trade right afterward and said, how do you defend the Lakers now? And it'd be interesting to see how people try. What do you mean defend them? How do you defend a, oh, like on the court? On the court. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's yeah. a great question. I thought you meant like they were How do you defend their villains? moves? No, yeah. no. No, not at all. But yeah, how do you defend them on the court? I have no idea. Yeah, the West looks like it's going to be theirs. OKC is the only, you know, the only team probably who can match them, but star for star, yeah. All right, my uh, last thing for today, the kind of good news for hockey fans, the NFL or the NHLPA made its first proposal to the owners today. Uh, as everyone knows, the collective bargaining agreement is scheduled to expire on September 15th, and Commissioner Bettman has said if there isn't a new deal by then, there will be another lockout. But there's good news. The uh, Donald Fear presented what seems like a really fair deal that could stabilize the industry. That's his quote. Uh, he said the players are ready to surrender as much as $460 million in revenue under the proposal if the league continues to grow at an average rate. He says the number could balloon to $800 million if the league grows at the same rate it has over the last two seasons. He says we don't believe that the proposal the players made today once we do believe that the proposal the players made today, once implemented, can produce a stable industry and give us a chance to move beyond the recurring label strife that has plagued the NHL the last two decades. Yeah, I'm trying to find the owner's proposal to the players, and I can't... Okay, I did find it here. Look, the players took an approach that sounds like they actually want to get done, something done, where the owners... Just threw something ridiculous looked out. very greedy in right. this. Um the owners want a reduction of the players' hockey-related revenue, which was at 57% to 46%. So they want the players to take an 11% pay cut. Uh, I believe there was more. There would be no salary arbitration. Entry-level contracts would be five years instead of three. And entry-level contracts in hockey, if you're not familiar, are very low compared to football, which actually just lowered theirs not too long ago. Uh, it was a rough... It looked, proposal. Like, it looked like we have no interest in really bargaining in good faith. Right. We know you're never going to sign this, but this is our offer. Get so ready people, for a lockout. People actually theorize that the players might just come back and say, we want no salary cap. Like, that's your starting point? Okay, here's ours. We're, we're miles apart. And it's nice to hear that the players came with a very reasonable, reasonable offer. I think the players have sent a message that they want to be on the ice in October. Absolutely. And I think what's going to happen now is if the players aren't on the ice in October, fans are going to blame the owners. And right now, I believe, uh, Steve already said, 40, $465 million. And if the league continues to increase, they'd actually be giving up more like 800 I think you said right. that already. Yep. That's, And I believe they said they wanted everything else to be practically the same. They're just conceding that we'll give the owners a little bit of money. That said, the owners are crying poor while signing, what, three, four players this offseason to $100 million deals? And this isn't teams like the Rangers doing it. This is Minnesota. Yeah, and the Minnesota owner did it and immediately said, oh, it's just proof our system's broken. Like, Right. right. Like, he, Oh, that's what you're doing is teaching a legal lesson by right. signing two of the biggest free agents to $100 million deals. So. You got to take that if you're the league. I'm guessing they don't immediately do it, but and that's fine. You don't. They don't necessarily have to say, "Okay, fax it over, we'll sign it," but they have to say, "Okay, great starting point. Let's adjust this and adjust that and adjust that, and boom, we got a deal." In right. A week. They, at least they know like the players are arguing 
in good faith. They're trying to make something happen. This isn't ridiculous. So maybe they can back off their ridiculous demands and get a deal done. We don't need to see any any games get canceled. Totally agree. My number, my last thing this week, congratulations to Rory McIlroy for winning the PGA Championship. Uh, his second major, he's only 23 years old, and he won it by a record eight strokes. So it's a little early to call him say that he looks like Tiger Woods, but he looked like Tiger Woods that day. Uh, he just dominated. dominated the field. And he's the current world number one at 23. He's got a beautiful girlfriend. Uh, he looks like a superstar, and that maybe is what golf needs since Woods has kind of been gone. Not that Woods isn't inching his way back in a little bit, but he's got to win one before he and can that, say he's all the way back. That record he broke has stood our entire lifetimes. Like, that record... The eight strokes? Yeah, that yeah. was since 1980. That record was set by Jack Nicholas. So, yeah, congratulations to Rory McIlroy. Uh, maybe that's what golf needs. Tiger Woods, no majors this year again. He's still five behind Jack. So, yeah, got it, no closer he, this year to breaking that record. It might be. If you had to put money on who catches Jack Nicholson, Rory McIlroy, or Tiger Woods, who do you put it on right now? McIlroy's at two, so he's way behind him. I'd put it on Rory. I don't think Tiger's going to do it, so I think I'd be wasting I mean, my money. He'd have to win. He'd have to win every major for a year plus the next one. I mean, if he won every major, that would still take him another year and a quarter. Right. You know what I mean? So yeah. I mean, he's he's got a lot of work to do. Sure does. All right, that's going to do it for three things today. Here's what we're going to do: we're going to take a break, and uh, then we're going to come back with Luke Wynn. We're going to talk about Luke's experience at the Olympics, get a first-hand perspective on how things were down there. We're going to update the book club. Then we're going to talk with uh, Tass Malice about the trade that Don mentioned and some other NBA off-season things. We're going to do five on fantasies. We've got some emails from you guys that we're going to address there. And we're going to interview Ed Sherman from Sherman Report. Then we're going to close the show off with pick four. So we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with Luke Quinn. <laughs> Our first guest today was born and raised in the state of Wisconsin and is a graduate of the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern. Today, living in Brooklyn, he is one of the most unique and visual sports writers in the country. He is a full-time college basketball writer for Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com, and his power rankings column for the website is one of the most unique power ranking columns on the internet. His very popular blog during the NCAA tournament just took a road trip to the Olympics. He is making his fifth appearance on the podcast on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very kind and talented Luke Wynn. What's up, Luke? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. I just I'm spending my first, you know, twelve or I guess this is my twentieth hour back in the U.S. So well, welcome back. And yeah. uh, you you were kind of mentioning it was uh, it was a really long trip. Um, kind of. Kind of tell us this first, like when you were on the plane heading down there, knowing that you were going to do your Luke Win at the tournament blog, you know, as Luke Win at the Olympics blog, you know, when you when you sit down to do the Luke Win at the tournament blog, you kind of know after doing it for a few years now what direction you want to go, what things you want to try to find. As you were heading to the Olympics, what was in your mind as things that you wanted to make sure you got on that blog before you got back on the plane to come home? 
Well, the arrangements are very different in that for basketball, um, I guess I'm in a blog, but I'm also kind of the site's main pundit, if you will, during the tournament. So, you know, I kind of have to have the responsibility during the NCAA tournament of kind of being the guy who comments on everything if it happens. Uh, whereas at the Olympics, SI sends a massive team of people. So we have, you know, a ton of great writers at the Olympics. And my blog is more of a kind of scene thing to round out the coverage. So approach is totally different. So I was kind of trying to, before I left for the Olympics, to find stuff that, you know, if we, if I know we, we already have, you know, it's like we have Tim Layden and David Epstein on track and Kelly Anderson and Michael Farber and, and Layden again on, you know, and swimming. And we have, we have like our best people on, you know, John Wertheim's at tennis and we have all these people on great sports. So I kind of got to have to fill in gaps. And so there were things, there were things that weren't even Olympic sports that I wanted to touch on. Like London, to me, is the the street art capital of the world. And as even before I left, when I was kind of searching around online and in people's Flickr feeds and things like that, it was seeing you know there's a lot of Olympic related art out there. And I wanted to, I thought we could do you know either show we could do showcases of some of those artists or Q and As with them. So I was already reaching out to guys to some of these you know street artists before I left, and we end up doing like three or four posts on that. Um, and including another one with like an Indian graphic novelist who um, did did some billboards there, um, and so there were things like that that I wanted to do. I mean, there were things I thought that another gap in terms of like you know when a U.S. media organization goes, a lot of times we focus a lot on the Americans, and there's a lot of great international stories that you just you know don't always give time to do. So there were things like an Indian woman's boxer that I you know covered. There's some you know there's some things like that that. Uh, you can get to do when you're not expected to be the guy at the Olympics, which is nice. You know, you spent a lot of time taking pictures and making sure that the blog was very visual. Is that real important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can, you know, there's a time, it's not like I don't write a lot or a lot of the year, but I just feel like at the Olympics, you know, one of the big, you know, one of the things you always hear from people back in the U.S. is, you know, there's a lot of attention on the Olympics, but they get this packaged version of it on NBC. And, you know, there's a lot of criticism of NBC and it's not live. And it's, you know, they get, it's nicely packaged. You know, it's a nice way to digest the Olympics. But I don't think that they have a great concept of what it's like on the ground there. And I feel like a reporter with a camera, and I'm not, you know, I'm not the greatest photographer in the world, but it can do okay. And, you know, I just try to, I feel like presenting it almost 50% visually and 50% textually is important uh, in a blog like that. So for me, like the pictures are almost half the, and that's not, that's not my normal uh, feeling about the journalism we do at SI, but I just think in this blog, the pictures are, are half the thing or more. And so I'm conscious of like always having my, either my, you know, handheld camera out or my iPhone out just to get stuff because it's, you know, it's, I feel like the picture is important. Tell us a little bit about being on the ground down there. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to get from event to event and what security was like and what it was like in terms of like, would you just be walking down the street and were athletes around and kind of like, what was the atmosphere of the London Olympics? Well, there are, there's a lot of different locations. It's not one, you know, concentrated thing. So let's say, you know, there's the Olympic Park where, a lot, all the, you know, the aquatic center, the track and field stadium, the, you know, field hockey, the velodrome, uh, the main press center is all there. And that's kind of like the, you know, the heart 
of the Olympics. And when you're there, you're, you know, there are, there are athletes walking because the village is right on the edge of it. And so you're seeing people, I mean, the really, it does feel like when you're there, you're at, you know, a big, you know, world event. Cause it's like, you know, there's people coming out of all these venues and there's kind of this just massive Olympic experience that's sectioned off from the rest of the city. But as a media, as the media people, we were mostly staying in hotels downtown and like a far away from the Olympic park. And so every morning it was like, if, if you're in my position where a lot of different sports, you would just decide, you know, where am I going to go? And then you would figure out how to, you know, what, what media buses took you there. So like the first, let's say the first day I went to badminton, you know, so it's like looking up through the media guides, you know, where is badminton? How do I get there? You know, it's like finding a bus for, for an hour out to Wembley stadium and then getting dropped off next to where the soccer arena was and then walking or, and then figuring out a walk to, you know, where badminton is and then figuring out once you get inside there, like where is the press seating? So there's, there's huge for reporter to just to get to the story. I feel like there's a funny amount of logistical, you know, wrangling that you have to, or you know, a logistical puzzle that you have to figure out every day just to get to all these events. It takes a lot out of you. Like I'm, I'm just all of the, the walking to buses and hustling in the tube and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of weight to lose when I got there, but I'm definitely down about like eight pounds from, from just. Like, <laughs> I feel like I've walked. 30 miles in the last two weeks. And I'm not, not saying that in a complaining way because every day I felt like I was having fun because you're just seeing something new and there's this adrenaline rush that keeps you up at the Olympics where, you know, because you're at this world event and it's like an exciting kind of buzzing thing that you can keep yourself going. Whereas, uh, you know, I mean, really is the amount of work that people are doing there is insane. Uh, you know, the sports writers who are writing every day are, are putting in an incredible amount of work the olympics what about the events what events did you see that blew you away what things did you get to witness that were just incredible what things that being there made it better than say my experience of just seeing it from my couch and the package that nbc put together for me sure i think that the scene wise the best scene was at this beach volleyball venue that they put in. I don't know how much of that was on TV, but it was because of the way the, you know, the Olympic architects did it. It was they rather than, you know, find some existing beach volleyball venue, they took a, an area that was just kind of a horse marching grounds right near 10 Downing street and kind of hemmed in by, uh, you know, some just classic London buildings in the square called horse guards parade. And they trucked in, you know, 3,500, loads of sand from the country and, and they built this volleyball venue and it was just this party in downtown London and it was kind of a hilarious scene you know it was I mean it was one beautiful when you go climb the climb the stands and you know the photos of this beach volleyball you know arena set kind of juxtaposed against these like classic London you know arch- classical London architecture um, and, and the way the announcers presented it and stuff it was like this part it was kind of like a drunken party at night there because mm-hmm. the matches would go until the last match each night during the pool play was like 11 p.m. And so, you know, the, the amount of drink you would see, it was really a, way more of a party scene than most of the other venues that I saw. And I did kind of a story on the scene there in the first couple of days, so I spent some time there. Um, and but in terms of like events seeing in person, one of the cool things, I mean, the press seats at track and field, if you got there at a reasonable time, you could get, it, you could get a, a media seat almost right near the finish line. Of, of the track and field things like you know in the first first 10 rows and so i i had to cover something else because i had a magazine assignment the night of uh the 100s run but i went to the 200 and i mean the 
you know, as a sports writer, you get to see a lot of cool events in the U.S. And you know, you get maybe you get a little jaded, but just seeing uh, seeing Bolt and Blake, you know, turn the corner down the final, you know, d- turn the corner and run the final, you know, one ten of the two hundred coming at you uh, with like a whole crowd roaring. It's like just I'll never forget that. I mean, you even get the huge adrenaline rush just as a writer, you know, watching that happen. And so, and I think that on that same night, David Rudisha. Uh, set the 800 world record and I was kind of I'm kind of naive to that I mean it was kind of a thing where the race was awesome but you know I remember going down in the media mix zone afterwards and Tim Layden who was one of our writers who was kind of saying like you know I hope you realize what you just saw because you know you can go to track and field for 10 years and only see a handful of world records and you know you just saw one of the 800 races of all time right there and so that night I I think I saw you know I was amazed you know, I I remember the very first time I went to a hockey game and sat like down on the boards where the size of the hockey players mattered and I could feel the speed and I could uh, see them bouncing off the boards. What was it like? Try to describe what it's like to see Usain Bolt running that close to you. Oh, it's it's I mean, it's kind of, you know, He's coming. It, the, the race doesn't take very long, you know. You got right. nine seconds, but it feels like, you know, it's like guys coming at you in slow motion, and everyone's moving so fast. And then to watch this man, who's you know, he's bigger than everyone else in the race, just find this other gear, and not in a way that he's almost straining, but in this kind of like watching a kid run on the playground, you know, just turn it into this other gear and just take off. It's like. It's like nothing you've ever, you know. You, I've seen great basketball players do things where you're, you know, you're in awe. But this was just, you know, it's like the, you know, this is a very just the sprinting is such a raw human sport that's just, you know, who's faster. And so it's just taking and and he could find this other gear that was just incredible. And and the, to the and the fact that he could, as he's you know as he's in the last few yards of the race, like turn and look around. And without even slowing down, and just kind of stare at guys, and just taunt, and then afterwards, taunt them not in a mean way, but just like you can't catch me. And he's, and then in person, he he seems to be Bolt seems to be in a place where nothing he does uh, can be like criticized because I don't I don't know if it's that you know he's not because it's, he's Jamaican, he's not like belonging to the U.S. or the, you know or Great Britain. He's kind of this guy who could be popular everywhere. Uh, and he's goofy, and he you know he rises to the moment. So I think people excuse any of his antics, and even after the race, when he's saying things like "I'm a I'm a living legend," and you know it's <laughs> so I, you've got to think if some you know if LeBron wins the NBA title and says and does that in his press conference, he's gonna get, he gets killed. But Bolt it was just kind of like okay, you know, uh, we excuse you because you know when the time came, you put on a show every time. You know the 100, right. 200, the you know the four by one hundred relay. It was just amazing to watch, and he made. I mean, I think he made a lot of people's Olympics in that way. So, did uh, you did you get to see any of the Phelps and Lochte stuff, or you know, that was one thing. It's kind of like as a writer, every writer kind of has his own Olympics, and um, the swimming is. You have a media credential that can get you into almost everything, but for the certain biggest events in smaller arenas, like the swimming finals, okay all finals you have to have a ticket on top of your writer credential so each each media outlet might only get one or two uh, si probably gets two but we have to so we kind of have to make sure we have someone for the magazine and then a main you know person who's main right the swing so i never was able to get in uh and see the swimming races i was kind of like i just felt like 
even though the world was focused on that, that was kind of my time to float around. And I went and saw, you know, like badminton, beach volleyball, women's boxing, uh, you know, triathlon, a whole bunch of other sports and I had fun seeing them. But yeah, I was never in the pool. Does that include like the heats and stuff with the tickets? Um, in the morning, you could get into this. You could get to see heats. There were two okay. sessions, mornings and late. But but it never any of them swimming medal races uh, were all ticketed. But yes, you could see heats if you wanted to. But it was kind of like that was one thing. If you committed uh, as a media member, there was only there were so many sports in the park. But let's say you committed to doing something like I want to go to the cycling time trial race. You were committing to being in a totally different you know part of London and there's no way you could like double up on sports that day, you know? So right. it would be, so for me, if I wanted to see, I went to see like Bradley Wiggins, you know, who the Tour de France winner racing the time trial. And that's like way out at Hampton court palace, which is a long, you know, train ride out. And that's, that's your day, you know? So there's no way to, to jump between them. Um, the sportscasters are here with Luke Wynn, just getting back from London where he had a chance to write his Luke Wynn at the tournament column or blog as Luke Wynn at the Olympics. Pretty cool. And you can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Wynn. Uh, I, I wonder now that you have this Olympics under your belt, what would you maybe do differently in Rio if you happen to go with the similar assignment? I mean, we did, I did this, I had kind of, I had, I did this blog for Vancouver for the winter Olympics. So I kind of had a chance to, you know, test run it a little bit. Um, in, in Rio, in terms of what, so I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but in terms of um, what do we do next time? And I think that maybe researching more international stories because I, I would stumble upon international stories, you know, kind of in funny ways. Like the Indian graphic novelist that I did a Q and A with for his billboards, you know, told me the story of an Indian women's boxer that I ended up profiling, and you know, and there were things like weird race walking scandals that I stumbled upon in the paper. But maybe. Um, maybe reaching out to some international athletes before before the olympics to you know pre-plan some stories that way i think would be cool um but i like the way it turned out i mean i thought we got a, it was a good mix of some sport coverage but we got a lot of scene stuff a lot of art stuff in there um i wouldn't have minded adopt i think in the future maybe adopting a it would be cool to adopt a blog a team or athlete, maybe not necessarily. It'd probably have to be someone obscure, but and just kind of follow them for the, make make them the uh, right. the official, you know, uh, athlete of the log and kind of follow their Olympic experience in a way that we're almost rooting for them. Uh, that would be that would be something that I may try in Rio too, because I didn't have anyone I was you know incredibly attached to. What were the What were the locals like? Were they really? Uh, really happy to see everyone there or were they kind of like counting down the days of just like getting their world back well i felt like i was i was trying to read a bunch of british newspapers before i left and you know just to get the sense of things and they were complaining a ton before the olympics started at least in the media there was you know talking about the traffic problems or how it was going to be awful in traffic in downtown london and how the tube was going to be ruined for commuters and how you know, the secure, there were security problems and all this stuff. But once we got there and they're at the Olympics and the Brits started winning medals in cycling and equestrian and rowing, things like that, um, I thought people were really behind it. I mean, London seems to be, I know it's, they, they've said it's, you know, like moaning, or, which is their, you know, term for complaining is like a national sport. But I thought once they started winning medals, I mean, even the tabloids who are, 
mostly interested in scandal and negative things were just getting totally rah rah behind Great Britain into in a funny way. Like, you know, Americans will will rag on NBC or complain about homerism, but I mean, like, the, their BBC announcers are just out rooting for you know and yelling during races and stuff. And, that, and so, and I thought that people were really behind it. I mean, I I, I felt I didn't hear anyone really mad about the Olympics there. They seemed to be having fun and they had a really good Olympics for them. I mean, I know Americans saw a different version of it on TV where we're interested in the swimming victories and our gymnastics victories and our basketball um, and some of our runners. But the Brits, you know, what they were interested in was cycling, you know, the, velo- the, t- the track cycling, the road cycling, their distance runners like Mo Farah, uh, Jess Ennis, they're, you know, another one of their athletes, um, things like equestrian rowing, and they love that stuff, and that stuff was getting more primetime television than any of these sports that you know we would think are the Olympics. But right. doing well in it, they they were having a great. I mean, these people, like equestrian riders who won, weren't being celebrated as heroes. You know. Yeah. Two more quick things. Uh, in the United States, there was this like picture, seemingly drawn of the Olympics being like a sex romp where they had to like give out a billion condoms and everyone's just fornicating all over the Olympics. Did you get any sense of this? Yeah. I mean, I, my sense of it is that it's a, to a big degree is a myth and that, um, you know, and one athlete at the winter Olympics was kind of saying that like the condoms are out, but a lot of athletes were just like, people kept taking them and taking them and taking them. So almost to increase the count, you know, so it would right, seem like a goof raise would come out like, Oh my God! They had to replace another five thousand condoms. When really it was like, it's not like some guy is you know getting laid five thousand times. He's just got a pile of like you know it's like every athlete probably is like a pile of five hundred condoms in their room or something. But uh, I do think that athletes are partying a lot. Um, but I don't. I think that the whole vision of it being this total romp is is not is is like a blown away out of proportion. But you know, I mean, it's. Uh, you're, you're certainly putting a lot of you know attractive, healthy people in one place. So I imagine that it does happen. And I know that I mean, especially for the people who uh, whose events are big early in the Olympics, you know they can spend the rest of the time partying in London clubs. But I was shocked though. I thought the British tabloids were going to kind of you know pull some dirty stuff and follow some athletes to clubs and you know have some stories about you know nasty things happen. The only the only one they played up was like. Uh, something that Usain Bolt Instagrammed on his own, which is that him hanging out with the, I think the Swedish women's handball team, uh, right, you know, right, right. women at 3 a.m. after winning the 100, but it wasn't anything, you know, I mean, who knows what happened. It looked like there were just people taking pictures together, but that was the only party story that I saw. And I was expecting that the tabloids would try to dig up some real, you know, real dirt on anyone who went out and, you know, raged in London or even in the Athletes Village, but they didn't. Uh, so we'll we'll never know entirely, but I think it's blown out a little bit. And uh, it's kind of same question, but it, for the media, is is the is it a wild sex crazed event for the media as well? Like, are you guys just down there and just like woo? Um, not at all. It's so the me, the media version of the Olympics is so sad in that you know I mean we used to SI put us up in a really nice hotel and stuff. I mean we were we were we were well um, you know we had a nice. Uh, nice place to stay but everyone's working really late man i mean if you're right. if you're a swimming writer those last few races are late and then you write till i mean the, or i guess even even the track like the guys who are there like tim Layden and epstein would write late stories 
they'd get back to the hotel at like three thirty in the morning, and the and weekday pubs in London close at ten thirty, and then the weekends not even that late. I mean, th- there was there were a few hotel bars that stayed open for the writers, but I mean, as you you know, as you can imagine, a scene of a bunch of you know like fifty sports writers wearing their credentials, drinking beers together at two a.m. in, the, in a Radisson is not a sexy scene by any means. <laughs> Luke, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, it's great to get your perspective so soon after arriving back in the United States. Again, you can find Luke on Twitter at Luke Wynn. And, you know, one thing that's great about the Olympics is it just cuts away this, like, huge chunk of the summer that usually moves at a snail's pace. So it only means that we're getting closer and closer to be able to chat with you about college basketball. So we're looking forward to that as well. But thanks for doing this today, Luke. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. Talk to you soon, bud. All right, I want to thank Luke Wynn for joining us after only being home in the United States for just a few short hours. Really appreciate him taking the time out to describe the sights and sounds of London for us. Really cool interview there. Uh, Book club update. We said we wouldn't be doing a whole ton of reading, especially in the beginning of this month, and that's because both of our books we're featuring have later release dates. But what we are is one week away from the release of Paterno by Joe Poznanski. Uh, That book comes out next Tuesday, August 21st, and it will be interesting to see when that book arrives at our doorstep. Still haven't, as far as I know, it's still an embargo. Still haven't seen it. Still haven't seen any of the excerpts running, like supposedly GQ has an excerpt in their September issue. Uh, The other book club book of the month this month is Best of Rivals. Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. That book's cut by a guy named Adam Lazarus, and it comes out on August 28th, 2012. So it's two weeks away, and uh, I'm about halfway through it and really enjoying it. Some really interesting stuff I did not know about Steve Young's career, including He's been getting paid every year by this USHL, you wait, excuse me, not USHL, USFL team into the 2000s. They were still paying him because of the way his contract was structured. So good for Steve Young, and that's just one of the little things you'll be able to find in Best of Rivals, Joe Montana, Steve Young, and the inside story behind the NFL's greatest quarterback controversy. That's it for the book club update this week we should have more information next week about whether or not we're going to have joe poznanski on this show or at least if we have a copy of the book i'd imagine by the release date it will be out of embargo since it'll be in stores we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with tass mellis from the basketball jones podcast to talk a little bit about the big darren howard trade to the lakers so we'll be right back Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario. He is the co-founder and co-host of the Basketball Jones podcast, blog, and TV show at the Score Television Network. The podcast is simulcast each Friday on the Grantland Podcast Network. He is making his third appearance on the Sportscasters today. Warm welcome to the very talented Tass Mellis. What's up, Tass? Steven, how you doing, man? Thanks for a little hip intro. I, uh... 
that's a perfect perfect summer weather perfect music for for summer weather here in ontario go up to the cottage that's what we listen to uh you read my mind that's i should hit the cottage this weekend and bring up a little pth with me yeah you know the guy that sits be- i think i might have told you this but the guy that sits behind me at sabers games canadian guy and he bought a new cottage this year and i mean when he was telling me about it it was like he bought the sabers you know what i mean like just the pride and the and the the happiness he had for purchasing this cottage it's just it's unmatched it's right in, it's uh, in, yeah people in ontario take their cottages very seriously uh you know they're fishing very seriously the the renos they do them all themselves i'm sure it's uh yeah it's it's a bit of a religion here i think in uh, in cottage country as we call it in ontario canada yeah for sure awesome well it is always will be a little weird that we're not going to just start talking about hockey right now, but that's okay. Uh, your thing is basketball, so we'll talk some b-ball. And the first thing I want to say is, did you have any impressions of any thoughts about USA basketball and their second straight gold medal at the Olympics? Or did that kind of just go the way you thought it had to go? Um, you know, the fact that, that it was a close final was kind of surprising after watching the preliminary games, the quarterfinal and the semifinal, you expected uh, Spain to kind of roll over and, and have, you know, just a, a poor shooting half, at least, you know, probably to start the game and, and the U.S., the way they're scoring, you'd think it would be a blowout. So it was a bit of a surprise that it was a seven-point game in the end. I mean, it's... We get a little bit of the March Madness feel because it's a single elimination tournament uh, at the end there. So anything can happen in in one game like that, but you just didn't really expect Spain to keep it close. And, and 2008, when the two teams met in the gold medal final, uh, that was one of the best basketball games I've seen in terms of just uh, you know the scoring, the offensive production in that game. And it kind of carried over this game. It was, it was pretty phenomenal. 107-100 score um, in a 40-minute game is, is, a, is a huge number. Uh, you know, for uh, an elimination playoff type atmosphere game. So uh, I love the way the U.S. basically said, screw it, we're going to win this tournament our way. No defense, really. I mean, Tyson Chandler played eight minutes in that game at the center spot. Carmelo Anthony comes in and they're playing, you know, Melo and, and LeBron at the 4-5. It's, uh, you know, along with Kevin Love, who isn't much of a defensive player. They just said we're going to outscore teams, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, they, they, it's pretty unique, I think. You know, after watch, after being together, or I'm sorry, like being, you know, you know with your NBA team uh, until June. Uh, you know, for the teams that make it there, and then to jump on a plane and start practicing with these guys, uh, I think it's pretty unique that the amount of chemistry that they had, they showed in this tournament, and how they were moving the ball pretty, pretty well. Uh, you got to give a lot of kudos to Coach Krzyzewski for that. Um, and you know, when you have the best player in the world, LeBron, leading the way, and then you got Kevin Durant hitting shots like nobody's business on the one side, and you've got talented guys who, anytime they step on the floor, are going to play well. And, and Chris Paul and and Kobe and friends, uh, you know, it's not surprising that they play well. But I mean, to play that steadily well over the entire course of the, uh, the Olympic tournament was a little surprising. I mean, they were just. They were great, and uh, the fact that you know no one could really match them, um, you know, it's it's a bit surprising. I don't mind the talks about comparing them to the the nineteen ninety two Dream Team. I really don't, um, you know, because obviously the world has gotten a hell of a lot better, and right. and the U S. was basically crushing teams, and they didn't have you know several of their guys that would have been there, and Dwayne Wade and, and Dwight Howard or Chris Bosh as well. Uh, so I mean, they, it was a pretty phenomenal 
team to watch. And uh, Spain just, you know, kind of put the icing on the cake there by making it a close one down the stretch, um, you know, in the gold medal game. Uh, unfortunately, in the second half, Juan Carlos Navarro, who is uh, an American uh, basketball killer, the way he shoots the ball, wasn't really there, wasn't really prevalent uh, in the second half. So that kind of did them in, and either was Jose Calderon of uh, of our hometown Toronto Raptors here. But it was, uh, it was a really fun tournament to watch. There's been a lot of talk of potentially going to some kind of an under-23 format, similar to what they do in soccer. As a fan of the game, what's your opinion? Would you like to keep the United States sending pros and all the countries sending pros, or would you rather go to some kind of an under-23 format that maybe leveled the playing field a little bit? Well, I mean, I don't think the, the playing field is is that unleveled right now. Uh, I, I really don't think it's that much of a problem, first off. Uh, second off, if they, if they don't play, if they, the NBA players, the U.S. players specifically, don't play for their team in the Olympics, I don't really see the World Championships, which also happen every four years, taking that next step and becoming that high-profile pro, tournament in basketball. I just don't see it happening. The Americans just don't have that on their radar as an important tournament. The Olympics are that. So if you if we're talking about seeing the best of the best American players, I think it's only going to happen in the near future in the Olympics. And uh, I, I would really, I'd prefer that. You know, the, they're not all going to show up for a world championship tournament. They, they just don't care that much. The U.S. Right. doesn't care. You know, the Americans just don't grow up. All these guys don't grow up thinking about playing in the world championships. Olympics is secondary, and, and the world championships are definitely third on their list behind the NBA and the, and the Olympics. So I don't, I don't like that idea. I'm, I'm comfortable with the way it is. I'm totally fine. I think the Americans showed themselves well. And, I, and again, I don't think it's you know, that far off. Yeah, there's a, there's a drop-off from you know, the first two, three, four countries to that next sort of tier of teams. And then there's a, you know, another drop-off at the bottom. Twelve teams is okay with me. Uh, you know, some of those teams didn't fare very well. You know, your China's, uh, Tunisia, and Nigeria. But you know, the, I, I think 12 is is a, a decent number. And the Americans, again, it was a seven-point game in the gold medal final. I, I don't think it. You know, as much as they rolled through the tournament, it, it still was a close, close game at the end. Right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the NBA offseason. The last time we talked was uh, just before the start of the NBA finals, and. Um, Obviously, the Heat took care of business there, and LeBron James is finally a champion. Uh, does did, did that change anything for you? Did the fact that you know LeBron has a ring now and isn't Charles Barkley anymore? I mean, did it did it did it change anything for you? It's a good question. The way I look at LeBron, yeah, I think so. I think I'm sort of part of the the general public where. You know, we all called him the best player in the game. I mean, not all of us. There's still some crazies out there who think Kobe Bryant could be the best player in the game. Um, but, you know, I, I look at it and, and say, now, yeah, he let his team there. And, and, you know, in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Final, I think, was the biggest showing for me where you know, they were down 3-2 to the Boston Celtics. And uh, the way they turned around in Game 6 where he had that ridiculous 40-point game in Game 7 to win it, um, you know, I still thought OKC was going to win the finals, but uh, he led his team. I mean, he was the leader. He is a different guy. You have to look at him differently. Uh, he was a, the one guy um, that, you know, the Heat obviously, you know, don't come close without. I mean, Dwayne Wade was there. Chris Bosh was there who really helped out. Um, 
but uh, he was, you know, kind of the motiv- motivator. He was, you know, a little bit more stoic, a little less smiley, a little less dancey. Uh, he stopped with the chalk toss during the playoffs, and uh, he was their rock. I mean, he's he's far and away the best player in the game, um, and I think, you know, it's pretty burdensome to, to be called that and to then lead your team and not to have a ton of help night in and night out. And I, you know, on our, our show daily, you know, in game five of that Boston Celtics series in the Eastern Conference final where he kind of, he kind of faded in the fourth quarter and did a lot of standing in the corners and, and just didn't take a lot of shots and let Dwayne Wade kind of do it. Um, you know, that was a really important game where they went down 3-2 and I was all over him on the show, but um, he proved me wrong. And uh, I, I didn't really expect that. I mean, he was... Uh, the guy that they leaned on time and time again, and he came through. Um, yeah, he's, he's definitely, he definitely has to be looked at differently. I, I don't think there's any choice for any fan out there. Um, not only is he the best player in the game, but now he's a champion. And, um, you know, whether he did that in my Heat uniform or Cleveland Cavaliers uniform, it doesn't really matter. I know we all talk about uh, the general consensus out there is this is such a top-heavy league. The Heat, OKC, those teams are by far and away, they're going to win everything. Well, that's not true. I mean, the Celtics took Miami to a game seven. The difference was LeBron James. It's not because he joined a super team that they roll over the entire league. They're a damn good team, um, but LeBron James, you know, makes them that much better. And it, uh, there's no asterisk on this title for me whatsoever in terms of them, you know, joining together and joining forces together. Whether, you know, if it would have happened in an 82-game season where other teams would have maybe gotten, you know, some more training camp time or, or some more practices in, you know, who knows. You can argue that there's an asterisk on it because of that, but not because of the superpowers or any of that. I Yeah, I, I think I liked LeBron after he won the title a little bit more. He seemed a little more jovial, you know, just just he just seemed like more of a real guy. I think he could finally, you know, put down the shield, put down the guard that he always has up with the media, which, you know, I understand, you know, the, what he's gone through and, and how, what he's, you know, sort of imposed on himself with the, the decision, et cetera. But he seemed more of a real guy, I thought, you know, when he was asked the first question um, right after the winning the title, how do you feel? And he said, about damn time, you know, and, yeah. I, and I liked it. And I think LeBron's a good guy. And by what everybody says in the NBA, he is, a you know, a funny uh, genuinely nice guy. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, you have to look at him differently because he was the guy that made this happen. You know, sports are copycat, and uh, when one team wins the championship one way, you know, Miami put this big three together, and really maybe they were copying what Boston had done, putting their big three together, and, you know, it seems like everyone wants to have a big three, and the Lakers have been really aggressive this summer reshaping their team two two parts to this question what did you think of what the lakers did to get dwight howard and what did you think about orlando who has been holding this piece kind of the way in hockey chris nash and columbus they had that one piece that they knew they had to move and they waited and they waited and they waited and they finally got their deal how did they do wow uh, I mean, for as far as LA goes, it's scary. That's scary how good they are. Uh, the fact that you know these these tax rules have been imposed with the new CBA, and the Lakers have said we don't we don't give a crap. I mean, they are going to pay a lot of money um, to to the league because of the luxury tax going over the salary cap with the deal they made here for Dwight. 
and now having Powell obviously and Kobe and Nash beside them. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm jacked to watch this team. I understand if I'm in New York and a Knicks fan or Celtics fan and I hate the Lakers that I'd be upset. But you know, I'm a, I'm a Toronto Raptors fan, so I'm okay with it. I, I know the, the Los Angeles Lakers aren't our main competition uh, as a Raptor fan. They just have a beautiful lineup now. I mean, it's it's incredibly good. Dwight Howard is um, going to have his best offensive season because he's playing with the best point guard he's ever played with. I think Kobe Bryant is starting to realize, hey, I'm a little bit of an older guy. I don't have to shoot absolutely every time. I know it is Kobe Bryant, so he is going to take those fourth-quarter shots. But now he's got a guy uh, that he can rely on in Steve Nash to, to, to handle the ball. And they, they had a, you know, a fairly close series with OKC in the second round. It was a five-game series. Uh, they lost a couple games in the last couple minutes because of Kobe Bryant. He kind of turned, over, turned it over, um, and he just he had to do a little too much. Uh, but they had two leads. I mean, it could have easily been 3-1 um, at, at one point in the series. So uh, they weren't that far off, and now you've got a happy Pau Gasol because he knows he isn't getting traded because he was a part of all those rumors. Dwight's going to be happy. Dwight you know, didn't look like himself last year. They've got their best point guard that they've had uh, since Magic Johnson. So, I mean, how can they not be excited? Uh, and, and really, I think, you know, they are old. That's a bit of a problem with them. Um, and, you know, Nash has to stay healthy. Uh, but I see them as the favorites. Uh, they have a slight edge on OKC, in my opinion. Uh, Durant is obviously the best player out of those two teams. Uh, and the Spurs are still around. But um, uh, I, I'm just excited to watch Dwight Howard operate with, with a guy who can, you know, work the pick and roll with him so beautifully. He's going to work the pick and roll with Pau Gasol so well. And if Kobe can just say, hey, I'll take shots. Off the dribble, I don't need to, not off the dribble, uh, not off his own dribble, I should say, off Steve Nash's, working off Steve Nash's dribble, and he doesn't have to be the primary ball handler. I mean, geez, it's, it's going to be nice. They, they apparently talked um, before Nash gave it to go ahead, before he allowed Phoenix to trade him. So you got to assume that they're both willing to work together. Um, Kobe has already said Dwight, this is Dwight's team. So I like him sort of allowing the other guys to take the limelight. I think they'll be fine. As far as Orlando goes, they didn't get a great package back. Yeah. There's just no no other way to put it. I'm not sure what they're doing. They they really didn't shed a lot of money or get great draft picks. You have to do that if if you're going to rebuild. They got a guy like Aaron Aflalo, who's or, uh, owed a decent amount of money. Al Harrington, who's owed a decent amount of money. And then they've you know made mistakes like re-signing Jameer Nelson uh, for six per. They still have Hito on the books. They couldn't get rid of Glenn Davis. Uh, so they've got a lot of money there, uh, and they're going to have a very average team. I mean, they're not, they're not a terrible team, uh, but uh, I'd find it hard to be an Orlando Magic fan right now. And you look back over their history, they had a Shaq who demanded, who got out of there. They had a Tracy McGrady who wanted to get out of there, and now Dwight. So it's pretty difficult to be a, a Magic fan and... and and get back and, and line up again for season seats when, when this has happened a few times. I mean, it happens in the NBA. They had a chance with Dwight, and he did stick around for eight years, so it's not like uh, you know they'll never get a star again, but uh, they made a mistake in, in not getting a better player. I mean, they just, they just didn't get enough. Again, those names I mentioned, Aflalo and Harrington, and then uh, you know Vucevic and Mo Harkless and, and bad picks. I mean, the draft picks were the real killer for me. They just couldn't find somebody... Uh, involved 
with the trade to get some decent picks because they're basically all lottery protected. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm worried for them. Um, they're just going to be a mediocre team, and, and they're not going to get better anytime soon. I don't know why they didn't try and get a Bynum uh, or Brook Lopez, which it seemed like were, were, you know, at least more prominent players in this league, guys who are, you know, Bynum an all-star in this league, Brook Lopez, you know, borderline an all-star when he's going well with Brooklyn Nets there. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head over that one. I'm really not sure why they pulled the trigger now. At this point, they definitely could have waited at least a few more months uh, before uh, training camp starts. You know, it's incredible. I wonder if there's ever been another point in sports history where in two different sports, two you know, all-star, superstar players had to be traded, and the teams waited and waited and waited to do it, and both of them blew it. You know what I mean? Because the Nash trade was a bust for Columbus. And as you say, Orlando obviously could have done better. And it's just so incredible that those two trades happened so close to each other. And uh, so, there's so many similarities. But um, uh, yeah, uh, And then one line, you know, he could have, uh, the, the Orlando management there could have easily looked at the Carmelo Anthony situation in Denver and, and what they got for him from the Knicks. Um, you know, with there's just a little bit more star power there that they got from the Knicks. The Knicks had more to offer um, than you know the Lakers did. Uh, I shouldn't say than the Lakers did, um, but they they definitely had a decent amount to offer. The Knicks did for Carmelo Anthony, and the Magic just should have found a partner willing to do that. And uh, you know, they could have if they could have easily traded Dwight for Bynum straight up, and. I think you'd be happier with that package, with that one player. I mean, I, I really don't understand. They seem to just panic. I, I, I don't get it. I mean, they could have taken so much more time uh, and, uh, you know, got guys that, you know, they got some character guys. Um, I'm, not, I'm not diminishing that fact, but I just I don't understand the, the talent level that they got back, the draft picks that they didn't get back, and, uh, frankly, the salary cap room that they didn't get back either. Just uh, failed on all levels. I really don't understand it. Last thing, you know, we've concentrated a lot this offseason on Dwight Howard and where he would be traded, and, and the trade finally happened. And in the beginning of the summer, we talked a lot about Steve Nash and, and him moving to L.A. Are there any other winners or losers, any teams that you see based on their offseason that will take a step forward this year, or the opposite of that, any teams that you think will take a step back based on what they lost? Well, you know, much was made of uh, the Mavericks offseason that everyone was surprised, um, you know, how fast guys were leaving. Jason Terry left, Jason Kidd left. And then we're starting to scratch our heads. Like, I mean, what's going to happen with this team? Are they, you know, is Dirk Nowitzki in, in, you know, the last few years of his career here going to be a team that misses the playoffs? Everyone was worried. Then they go get an O.J. Mayo. They go get a Chris Kamen. They go get a Darren Collison, and things start to look better. But I don't think this team is any better. Uh, I, I think Jason Terry is an under undervalued part, um, and I, I don't I don't see them really improving. I think that they're sort of at the same level, and uh, Jason Terry is a fourth-quarter, on-the-ball guy who can, you know, use the pick-and-roll. Uh, he, he just scored a ton in fourth quarters. He was a huge part of why they won the championship in the fourth queue. O.J. Mayo, as his replacement, isn't going to be that great. Um, so I think they've fallen off a little bit, even though people are giving them a lot of credit. And if uh, you're a Chicago Bulls fan, you know that you 
you missed this off season. And I'm not really totally understanding what happened there. They basically gave away their bench, uh, and what an incredible bench it was. They definitely had the best five-man unit off the bench in the league, uh, won them so many games, but they lose them Omer Sheik, Kyle Korver, Ronnie Brewer, C.J. Watson. Uh, you know, they keep one part in Taj Gibson, but that, I mean, those four guys were were very solid for them, um, and I know Derek Rose is not going to start the season with them um, because of his ACL and, and probably won't be himself during next season, but I'm, you know, I, I know they want to get away from the luxury tax, but, I mean, they're just, they let go of all those guys purposely and filled them, filled them in with lesser lesser-known guys, guys who just aren't as good. So I'm not really sure what the idea was there. I know Rose is hurt, but I don't really understand it. Um, so, I mean, the Bulls probably probably the worst. You know, the Heat obviously got better with Ray Allen and Rashard Lewis. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And, and I think Boston, uh, you know, recovered fairly well after losing Ray. Jason Terry comes over and uh, gets a little leprechaun tattooed on his bicep. Um, so I, I think they've got to be happy. KG sticking around. They're obviously going to look for, for more. But uh, I think I think if you're a Celtics fan, uh, you got to be happy. And, and the Knicks, the whole Atlantic division here um, got better. And uh, the Knicks, you know, marginally better. I shouldn't say a lot better, but uh, what they did was a little interesting. I mean, they should have obviously kept Jeremy Lin. Uh, I think everybody feels that way, and uh, I'm really excited to see what Jeremy Lin does in Houston, even though he doesn't have much of a supporting cast. Um, I think he's going to be a very good player in the league. You know, he's going to be around for a long time. Uh, I'm comfortable with the money they're paying him as an average over those three years. He's going to work his butt off, and uh, yeah, he's, he's going to have some bumps, but I'm excited to see uh, see what he does in his first real year as a starter, and uh, it's going to be tough. People are going to be all over Houston and Daryl Morey for giving him that money because he's not going to have an incredible season where he plays out of this world. But you know, you got to remember he's a fairly young player in the league. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see what happens there. All right, you can uh, you can follow Tass on Twitter at t a s m e l a s. And uh, before I let you go, I mean, what's the schedule for the podcast and the blog and the TV show during the summer? I know you guys are planning some kind of a Guardo Nahara tribute show for some time over the summer. What are some other plans? <laughs> uh, well, we uh, yeah, we just finished uh, with our Olympic shows. Now we get into uh, the blank Jones, we call it. We uh, we let people send in messages or send in emails and request certain topics. I mean, we're we're the basketball Jones, but we change it up. Throw in a different subject in there, and we we just ramble for 20 minutes, 25, 30, as long as uh, we feel like uh, rambling. So last year we had a lot of lot of great fun um, with the blank Jones. You know, from the online dating Jones to the uh, the astronaut Jones. Now that was a boring one. That one sucked actually. To uh, <laughs> I don't know the the TV draft Jones, where we talked about our best our most favorite TV shows. Oh, I like so that. We, yeah. we take it easy in the summer. We, uh, we're we going to do that for the next couple of months, probably before uh, training camp starts twice a week, uh, but, you know, through our regular uh, website and, and iTunes feeds. So that'll be fun. And then, uh, you know, as, as the season rolls around, we'll definitely do some sort of previews and then uh, back to the daily show, which is always a lot of fun and uh, definitely a, a couple new tweaks to that this, this coming uh this coming season, both uh, the video and, and audio form. So, uh, yeah, that's what we got coming up. All right, thanks, Tass. We'll talk to you soon, bud. Thanks, Steve.
It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Steven Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Pushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right. I want to thank Tass Mellis for joining us on the program today to talk a little off-season basketball. USA, Don, winning gold medals, sweeping those babies. In. Yeah, it's the year of uh, LeBron. Yeah, LeBron wins a gold medal, wins a championship. Plus, we won women's for like the eighth straight time. So, yeah, that's amazing to me, honestly. That uh, women's aren't even close. No, I mean that. I know they kind of in the Winter Olympics warned women's hockey that it, it better become more competitive than just USA and Canada, or it might be axed. Boy, women's basketball has got to be in that discussion. And that happened to softball, right? Because U.S. had dominated. And softball so. was competitive, though a little. I mean, they had it was USA and uh, Japan or China, one of those countries. So. Man, women's basketball has to be on that same same chopping block because those those games weren't close. I saw someone speculate: Would if we just brought the UConn women's basketball team to the Olympics every year, would they be able to win it? So yes, I, why, right, why, not, why not? Right? Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Five on fantasy today. A couple of weeks ago, we put it out to you. We started this kind of: How do you break a tie if you're got this guy? Versus that guy. And I think one that we did on the show last week was we got the second pick in the draft. Arian Foster's been picked. And we know we want Ray Rice or LaShawn McCoy. How do we break that tie? We actually said if you had any out there that you wanted us to go over, send them in. And we got some cool ones. So I will throw the first one out. We'll see what Don thinks. And then I'll tell you what I think. Okay. So we got an email from Jeff from Oakland, California. says, hey, guys, love the show. Picking first in my draft this year, first time I've ever had the first pick, really want to make the best of it. Should I take Arian Foster or should I go with Aaron Rodgers? My, in the past, I would say wait on quarterback. Um, this year, maybe more than others, it's compelling to take a quarterback because it's about the safest position you can take. And it's kind of top-heavy. There's about five or six guys I like. One of them being Vic, who's a little bit banged up now. So maybe there's five surefire guys in Rodgers, Brady, Breeze, Stafford, and Cam Newton. Uh, That said, if you take Arian Foster, I think you can get one of those five guys I mentioned with your second pick. If you take Rodgers in the first round... Foster's gone. Foster's gone, and your best bet at running back might be someone like DeMarco Murray, uh, Jamal Charles. Forte, maybe. Maybe Forte, maybe McFadden. The point being, just guys with a lot of question marks. Right. So... I think in this case you take Arian Foster, who really doesn't have any question marks. I mean, he's got the same injury risk as any other running back, but maybe he's not injury prone like someone like McFadden. And then in the second round, if he's still around, you take a guy like Cam Newton or Matt Stafford. Well, it's interesting because Jeff sent us this, and I don't know if you looked, but according to the live draft results from ESPN.com, these are the number one and number, and number two. two guys. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of people apparently are deciding, and in a league that you've started, Don, you have a Kentucky Derby style pre-draft where you draft an order, but that the order you pick names, that person then gets to pick their spot. Right, and my name came out fourth, so I had the option of picking any spot between four and twelve. Twelve, right? 
I picked four because I figured at some point in one, two, or three, Rodgers is going to go, which means I'm going to be able to pick Foster, Rice, or McCoy. Right. So far, I've tried that theory out in a couple of mock drafts, and I've gotten McCoy in all of them. Okay. So I'm going to say leave the quarterback as well and take the running back. I just think you're going to find a chance to get a running back later or a quarterback later that will right. you'll be happy with. What would make it uh what would bring it a little bit closer together though and maybe even make me lean toward Rodgers is check your league rules, uh know your scoring. You should know your scoring regardless going into a draft. But if you're getting 6 points per TD for a quarterback pass and it's a non-PPR league, I think that makes a lot more compelling case for Rodgers. I don't know what Foster's catch numbers are off the top of my head. My guess would be 30. Right, and you might be in a league where who knows completions. Right. That would be huge right. then for Rodgers. And he does run the ball a little bit. Aaron Rodgers is actually a, a tiny horrible. bit of an injury risk, though. I mean, he's been he's hurt had some concussions. twice in the last two years. I believe he's missed something like four games in the last two years. So he's not necessarily a surefire thing like uh Yeah, I mean, he Man played, them, the he played them all except for Week 17 last year. Right. So, I mean, but I the guess... year before, he had some concussion problems. Right. But... uh you can't go wrong with either. I, the way I look at it is I, the guy I like taking second more, and I think I would like that guy better if it was Foster. And even if it was Foster, I mean, I might not necessarily go Cam Newton. I might hold out for Vic and take another running back in between there or one of the better receivers. But I just like the guys. If you take Rodgers, you're going to be scrambling for a running back. Running backs are a little bit harder to come by than quarterbacks. So if you take Rodgers, take him. Make sure you get a good running back the next round, and then I would probably spend a lot of the time in your middle rounds drafting running backs that you hope kind of have like blow-up years. Next one comes from Aaron in Green Bay, Wisconsin. He says, It seems like Jennings gets all the publicity in the higher rankings, but Jordy Nelson actually outscored him last year. Who would you guys pick if you had the chance, Jennings or Nelson? Now, these guys are a little bit further apart than most of the ones we've done in terms of ADP, but that goes right into his question, really, because it proves his point. Jennings is uh, number 21 overall. He's the number five wide receiver, according to the average draft position on ESPN, where Jordy Nelson is 39 and is 13. So really, his question is, if I have the chance to pick Greg Jennings, should I or should I wait a couple rounds? And pick Jordy Nelson later. Yeah, that's that's really what this question is. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, hmm. Where you're going to take Jennings probably in the second round, and that's fine. I might like some of the running backs around him there more. Where well, right now Jennings ADP is right at the top of the third round. Okay, so he's right at twenty or so, twenty one in the ten team league, or right at the end of a second round in a twelve. Okay, league. right. He's twenty one. Whereas Jordy Nelson is around what forty or forty. So? Yeah, we'll call him forty. Boy, so first pick in the fifth round. I always kind of, subs- I I never like to take a guy after a career year because I, I don't have stats in front of me on it. But how many of those guys duplicate it? Jordy Nelson was probably huge in PPR. He was probably huge in any league last year, but he's done it once now. So I'd be a little bit nervous about it. That said, he's probably going to be, he's probably not going to be your number one running back or wide receiver. And even if he is your number one receiver, that means you took a quarterback and two running backs already. So then you're going to get Jordy Nelson, a guy like 
maybe Marcus Colston behind him, maybe Percy Harvin behind well, him. Well, I think another part of this question is, do you think Greg Jennings is worth the first pick in the third round? It, it depends what you've taken already. I know that's kind of a cop Well, out, let's but say you've taken running back, running back. If you're going to take running back, running back, and you're going to wait on a quarterback, then sure. I don't have a problem with that. Um, but there is still a lot of talent at running back around that spot. That's about the spot I'd love to gamble on Adrian Peterson uh, if he's not gone already, depending on how his practices go these next couple weeks. I mean, if he looks good, he might shoot up all the way to the first round. But, yeah, I both of them are being drafted in about where I would take them. I mean, I might rather have a running back. But if I've taken running back, running back, then sure. Why not take take Jennings? Yeah, I like Jennings a lot. I, I would... I'd say if you're in a good position to, and hey, by the way, you might be able to get both. Sure. Um, I don't. I'm not one of these guys who is completely shies away from picking two wide receivers on the same team. I couldn't. I wouldn't from that team. Same with like if I Roddy White and right, maybe Jacksonville. You don't want to start two receivers no. from them or right. Any. But uh, yeah, two from Green Bay, two from Atlanta, two from New Orleans, New England, two from New, New England, right. Any of these teams where we're talking about these quarterbacks, you could do it. But, yeah, I, I, I lean towards – I'd rather have Jennings, I think, in the third than Nelson in the fifth, kind of because of what you said. I've only seen Nelson do it once, and Jennings has done it year after year right. for a I mean, while now. If, if the question is who would I take over the other, like I, I wouldn't get cute and take Nelson there. I mean, definitely wouldn't take Nelson above Jennings. But if either are fine in their position uh, – I expect Jennings' tough thing has always been touchdowns. He, for whatever reason, doesn't get touchdowns. But touchdowns are hard to predict, and one of these years he's just going to have 10 touchdowns. He had nine last year, and he basically missed the whole last month of the season. Right, so it's it's hard not to like the number one receiver on a team with Aaron Rodgers throwing to him. I used to love your Michael Finley, and for whatever reason, I don't, I don't, he just doesn't seem to fit in that offense, and he can't stay healthy. So maybe they only have two real receiving options there. Although, what's his name? I would really like Randall Cobb Randall as Cobb. a late sleeper. Yeah, take him as like your I love 12th him. round pick. I love that. I love that pick. Especially if your league gives bonuses for any sort of return yardage. All right, last one. David from Atlanta. says, guys, love the show. We're loaded with wide receivers here in Atlanta. Who would you rather have, Roddy White or Julio Jones? These guys, uh, if it's PPR, I think you have to go Roddy White. I, they're, they're Roddy stuff. White is steady yes. and safe. He's safe and steady. Julio Jones can stretch the field. In yeah, he's a way, more that home run hitter. Yeah, that Roddy White can't. Here's the thing. Uh, I don't have the ADPs in front of me. I have them. What are they looking like? It's looking like Roddy White's the fourth wide receiver off the board. Julio Jones is the 10th. Uh, Roddy White is being picked at 18th. So at the end of round two in 10-team leagues, and Julio Jones is being picked 32nd, so at the top of round four in 10-team leagues. Roddy White, like you said, is a steady Eddie. Um, He has more potential to give you – his best week might be a 20-point week or so. I mean, that's really high. So say he has a good week where he gets gets you 15 points or so – that might be not too far. But it looks like, just looking at his stats, it looks like he had at least five games with 20 points last year. Yeah, five games with 20 points. At least. All right, maybe I'm going about this point the wrong way. What I'm trying to say is I think Julio Jones is more likely to give you bigger games and more likely to give you twos. He might have a game with two catches. You know what I mean? Whereas 
Roddy White's probably a lock for what eight catches a game or so, maybe not quite that high, but close. I'm guessing you get seven, eight catches a game. So in a PPR, I think you really like Roddy White. Again, if you're asking about at that draft spot, who would I rather have? It depends who I took before him. If it's a quarterback, then I'm probably going running back there and not taking Roddy White. And I'd be happy with Julio Jones in the fourth round as my first. Another receiver. thing about Julio Jones is he has had hamstring problems. He missed some games last year because of a hamstring injury. I think he missed four games last year. And he missed time now and again at Alabama. Yeah. Uh, so I'd rather have Julio Jones than Victor Cruz. I mean, that's not the question. Oh, definitely. But Victor Cruz might be being drafted ahead of him. I know ESPN has him on their standard cheat sheet higher than him. I'd rather have Julio Jones. I just think he's more talented. And I think a lot of Victor Cruz last year was just him getting lost or stretching like five-yard plays to 80-yard plays. Would you rather have Julio Jones or A.J. Green? Probably A.J. Green. A.J. Green. Okay. I I think he's just a more talented guy. Uh, I don't think the teams are all that different. It's not exactly like Daddy Ice is a gunslinger. To get back to David's question. I think I go Julio Jones for upside. I, I'm going to go White just because I've had success with him in the past, yeah. and I think I like picking him as my number one receiver because I almost know for a fact I'm going to get number one numbers from him. Yeah, you're going to get 10 points a week I just on, a, trust on an it. average week. I just and trust him. 20 on a good one. Yeah. You can't go, again, you can't go wrong with either of those guys. Thanks thanks for emailing those in. Again, the sportscasters at gmail.com, and you can email us at any time. Other emails we got that were a little bit – we're just going to hit on them real quick because it's a cop-out, I guess, on our part, but we didn't study all these guys. But Redskins running back situation, uh, the Carolina running back situation, and the Patriots running back situation, look, I'm not touching any of them, uh, especially where some of these guys are being drafted. Roy Halu is 58 right now. 58 ADP? Mm-hmm. So he, you're drafting Roy Halu when you're drafting starters. Uh, if you're playing one one quarterback, two running backs – three wide receivers or tight ends, you, you need to fill positions at that point where you're drafting Roy Halu. And now here's trusting the, a Shanahan running back. Here's the running backs with a 50, between 50 and 60 ADP. Here, these are the running backs. Okay. Willis McGahee. I'd rather have him. Reggie Bush. Rather have Bush. Especially in a PPR. Then Halu. Uh, and then the last one in that range is Ben, ben Jarvis Green-Ellis. Much rather have Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis. So, Halu not ranking very high for not. Right, and Willis McGahee and Benjarvis Green-Ellis might not be superstars like Foster, Rice, and McCoy, but they don't have a lot of competition there. And, it, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, Noshaw Moreno's there, but he's never been able to keep that job because he's never been able to stay healthy. And I don't even know who the backup in Cincinnati is. It uh, It's um, the backup. Uh, that's always Scott. been there? Yeah, yeah Bernard Scott, Bernard who looks Scott. like... Yep. He shows flashes of being good, but just never gets work. So there must be something wrong with him. Uh, Carolina Williams, D'Angelo Williams versus uh, Jonathan Stewart. Jonathan Stewart is going sixty seventh, and D'Angelo Williams is going eight, top of the ninth round, eighty second. Stewart's going ahead of him, huh? Yep, that's interesting. Stewart uh, just got paid. Stewart just yeah. signed a contract extension. Mike Tolbert is there, and I'm not saying direct. These draft. guys had trouble getting into the end zone anyway last year. Right. I mean, Jonathan Stewart only had. One, two, three, four touchdowns last year, and one was in week 17. And here's the thing there. Tolbert, for anyone that had him last, the last couple of years, actually, in San Diego, is a touchdown vulture who can catch the ball, too. He's not a, he's not a bad 
back in other scenarios. D'Angelo Williams at seven touchdowns, a little bit better. And they had a quarterback that just exploded with rushing right. touchdowns last year. So they've got two people to worry about scoring touchdowns. Where you're drafting them, it's not that risky. So you're basically asking, uh, do I want my first backup to be one of those guys or take a flyer on some receiver or draft a backup quarterback? Would you rather draft – here's two guys who are right next to each other. Totally different. Would you rather draft D'Angelo Williams or Doug Martin from Tampa Bay? They're directly next to each other. Doug Martin, just because I don't know anything about – that situation and he he could be the number one there the uh, next guy isaac redmond probably number one in pittsburgh for, for at least, least the a first few weeks. six weeks right maybe if i draft a guy like peterson isaac redmond's a good guy to have if not because uh, he can fill in Gerhard. in the beginning right if i need him for a couple of weeks i don't automatically a lot of people have redmond on their sleeper list I'm not a Mendenhall fan, uh, but that doesn't mean I'm a Redmond fan. It's just I'm not a really big fan of their offensive line. So, granted, he's a starter. In your when you're drafting backups, he's going to start for three, four weeks. Last thing in five on fantasy this week, you have to be really careful. Don't forget about changing your rankings based on what you see on the field during the these preseason, preseason games. Yeah. Remember that teams don't make game plans usually. Remember that players are playing very limited action. Don't get too excited about Andrew Luck. Right. I mean, it's nice no. that he had – it's better that he had a good game and he had a bad one, but from a fantasy perspective – Don't let what happens on the field in the next couple of weeks change your rankings too much. Concentrate more on what happens before the games, what coaches are saying after practices and what stories you're hearing on – Keep an eye on the depth charts. I mean, yep. if, you're, if you're looking – Ourlads.com is great depth charts. Maybe somebody like Doug Martin you do want to watch a little bit because you don't know if it's going to be him or LeGarrette Blount or whoever. Uh, but don't don't go nuts. The Onion, if you haven't heard of The Onion, it's like a mock newspaper, kind of like The Daily Show, probably before The Daily Show, but an online newspaper. Their headline this week – or one of their NFL headlines says insane moron draws conclusion from NFL preseason. So so, yeah, don't, don't go nuts. All right. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back with Ed Sherman from the Sherman report. Our next guest today is from Chicago, Illinois, and is a graduate of the University of Illinois. He spent 27 years at the Chicago Tribune, covering the 85 Bears, working on the White Sox beat, and covering golf. He spent his last 11 years at the Tribune, working on the sports media beat. He has co-authored two books, hosts a sports radio show that focuses on golf, and has a new sports media website called The Sherman Report. He is making his second appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented Ed Sherman. What's going on, Ed? Oh, thanks, Steve. Thanks for that introduction. You always make me feel more important than I actually am. So <laughs> thank you very much. Well, we're excited to have you on today because, you know, it, it just seems like it's been a really exciting month for someone who's on the sports media beat. And one reason for that would be all the kind of juicy stuff that surrounded NBC and their coverage of the Olympics and some of the decisions that they made in terms of showing things in tape delay and streaming things and streaming things not working. And I guess before we get into all of that, what I want to know is what was your overall 
kind of impression of the job that NBC did covering the London Olympics? Well, you know, let me just start this first for background. When I was first starting to think about doing this seriously in December and January, I thought it would be great. And then I got to thinking, oh, my God, it's an Olympic year. And that means, does this mean I'm going to have to watch, you know, a thousand hours of Olympics, you know, from, you know, for 17 days? And I almost for a minute thought, I don't know if I want to do this because I don't know if I can physically watch that much, you know, Olympics. And as it turned out, you know, I didn't watch a thousand hours, but I watched a lot. But I probably would have watched, you know, nearly the same amount if I wasn't doing this um if I wasn't doing this site, I, I, because I, it's the Olymp, you know, there's something about the Olympics that just draws you in, sucks you in, all those stories that, uh, you know, you know, the, the, uh, the once in a lifetime type moments of winning the gold medal and seeing these athletes, you know, break down when they win, you know, just literally burst into tears because it means so much to them. And, uh, so, you know, having said all that, uh, you know, I think for the most part, I think NBC does a pretty good job. I know that they're, you know it becomes really fashionable to dump on NBC and uh, and uh, and we can get into more of the criticisms. But on the whole, aside from the live issue, which is a big issue, I think they do a pretty good job, and of uh, of you know of telling the stories. And it's really a, a phenomenal undertaking when you consider the manpower, nearly three thousand people in London you know, and airing over 5,000 hours and all their different platforms. It's really, people take it for granted. And I really think that they do, for the most part, they do a really good job of getting the stories. And obviously the ratings show that, you know, people want the Olympics. Yeah, you mentioned the live issue, and, and this is nothing new. I mean, the, 19, the Miracle on Ice game in 1980 wasn't shown live in the United States, but living in Buffalo, a border town, I know that my father got to watch it on CBC as it was live. And uh, loves to tell me about that, how he got to see that game live. And um, so this is nothing new. And, you know, still living in a border town, we've had the chance to see how Canada covers the Olympics as opposed to how the United States. And it's been an interesting uh, perspective to, to see what they do. But what do you think NBC does right and what do you think NBC does wrong when it comes to carrying live events during the Olympic Games? Well, you know, what they do wrong, and I wrote today, is that I just don't think that you know, it's a different time than 1980, and I, I don't think they can get away anymore. They have to figure out the live issue. Too much of the story about the narrative about NBC's coverage of the Olympics is about the live issue. I think it detracts. It, you know, it's the reason why you see on Twitter, hashtag NBC fail, and all the other critical sites, you know, people criticizing NBC, the fact that you, on a weekend especially, that you have to wait six hours to watch Usain Bolt in the 100 meters and not airing that live on the the East Coast and would have been a late afternoon on a Sunday when you know plenty of people are watching. That's a huge thing. Uh, You know, I think that that's the live issue is a paramount story, and they have to they have to figure it out. Um, I wrote, uh, you know, that Mark Lazarus, the, the NBC Sports chairman, talked about in a teleconference talked about the vocal minority being the critics and the silent majority being all the people who were tuning in and enjoying the coverage and i took issue with that because i a i don't think it's a vocal minority i think there's more than that and b i think this just because people are silent doesn't you shouldn't construe that to be mean approval i think people 
in this day and age want to see events live, and they're going to have to figure out a way in 2014. I think it's just going to get worse. You're already going to, you know, the momentum's going to build, and it's going to get, you know, the backlash is going to get stiffer if they keep going on with this policy. Listen, these guys get paid a lot of money. He talked on that teleconference about innovating, about you need to innovate. These guys are going to have to innovate and kind of figure out a way where they can have their cake and eat it too, where they can air the events live on TV, not on your computer, and also you know maintain the integrity of the primetime telecasts. Yeah, a couple things. I mean, I don't understand the weekend at all. Like, why is the weekend okay for college football and for the NFL and for golf and for tennis and all these millions of events that we watch at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday and Sunday, but that doesn't work for the Olympics. That drives me nuts. And the second thing that really annoyed me is I felt a little bit like NBC held the events hostage in the sense that if you didn't get in that window on the app at 4 o'clock to see, let's just use the 100-meter as an example, if you didn't get to right. see that on the app, or if the streaming was uh, not cooperating, which was uh, definitely happening part of the time at, at the least, you would have to wait until at least 11 o'clock to see that event then, because not only was it in prime time, but they spent the yeah, first... It was the last one they yeah, showed. The I mean, they, they, they made, they made yeah. you wait all the way deep, because you had to watch all the, all the uh, prelim races. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree. The weekend thing, that was awful. And I think that they took flack for that, and I think they did. They are listening. I would be surprised. You know, I think what's going to happen is they're going to make sure that perhaps some of these marquee events aren't necessarily on a weekend so they don't, you know, for the winter games and, uh, you know, so they don't run into that again. I, you know, I, again, I don't know. Sochi is about, what, eight or nine hours ahead of the East Coast, you know, for the winter games, and that's coming up in, you know, not too long, you know, you know, February 2014, we're going to be back in that whole thing again, and they have to figure this out. You know, if the men's downhill runs in the afternoon in Sochi, air it live at 5 in the morning, 6 in the morning in New York, you know, and I think that you know, then people won't complain. I really don't think it's going to take away from the primetime viewership because, you know, I think people, are, for the most part, especially during the week, are going to still be working. They're still going to be busy. They're not going to be able to watch it live. And they have to figure out a way to kind of, you know, serve both masters here. And these guys are smart. And I think, you know, I think they, if there's, you know, I think they get it. I think they just can't have this story continue to be, you know, all about the live coverage. I think it just takes away too much from some of the good things that they do do. What about the other outlets? Um, you know, we live in an era where, newspapers and magazines and television they're trying to do less with more how did you think the games are covered by things like sports illustrated and newspapers maybe that you've read in chicago or just in general it's uh, massive coverage there's just so much out there frankly you know i mean i read some of the sports illustrated stuff but not a lot by the time you get your sports illustrated you know they're you know whereas before you know that was kind of you know, in the prehistoric days, you know, like 1970s to 1984, you know, you know pre-internet, I mean, that was the only way you could kind of get that, uh, you know, your complete report on what happened at the Olympics. Now it's just bang, everyone's out there, Yahoo, Fox, ESPN, NBC, you know, NBC had their own site, you know. Uh, so it kind of feels a little bit dated. And, you know, I mean, I think the newspapers, too, I think the newspapers really tried to be, 
you can't really talk about what happened yesterday. You have to, all the coverage they had to be more forward leaning because by the time people got their newspapers in the morning, you know, that was already almost a half day was already being completed in London. Um, so, you know, I think it's, uh, it was an interesting, I did a piece on, on, on staffing newspaper staffing for the Olympics and, you know, by and large, most people, you know, cut back LA times, uh, still had a lot of people there. USA today still had a lot of people there, but my old paper, Chicago Tribune, when I covered in Sydney, they went, I was one of 15 people, believe it or not, and they had five people in London. So it kind of tells you a little bit about where, you know, how this is being viewed as a newspaper internet type event. Yeah, I think I heard a lot of people call this the Twitter Olympics, too. You know? And it was, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, and again, and that's kind of a little bit, and how the, the, the and they control the narrative, and especially for NBC, you know, I mean, there was so much backlash in, about uh, NBC and the whole live issue. You know, does it represent the, uh, you know, the, the, the majority? I, you know, I don't know, but I can't think of one. I can't really think of very few, you know, very few people that I know, especially the core sports viewers who like tape delay. I mean, if it's available live, especially on a weekend, I felt frustrated. You felt frustrated. Hey, you know, we're home at, at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. You know, we want to watch Olympics and they're shown as equestrian instead of Usain Bolt running in the hundred meters. I mean, it's just not serving. I just don't think you're serving, uh, your public by, by doing something like that. Sportscasters are finishing up here with Ed Sherman, who you can find on Twitter at Sherman underscore report. And his great website is www.shermanreport.com. I wanted to ask you, um, as the Olympics ended, so did kind of the career of Bob Ryan, who is going to a more limited role at his paper, the Boston Globe. How do you put the career of Bob Ryan into perspective? Uh, you know, that's 44 years at one place. I did a piece on Sherman Report uh, about Bob's first job. I have a kind of a recurring series. I'm just starting on people's first jobs. And he started covering the Celtics in 1969-70, the first year after Russell retired at the age of 23. And when you consider that, that's just a remarkable run that he had, you know, covering uh, uh, one city and a large part with basketball. And the thing of being, you know, I got fortunate to be about around Bob quite a bit, you know, mainly on, you know, covering golf at the majors. And uh, just a really, and you could see it on TV, just a really passionate guy, cares about sports, cares about basketball, big college basketball fan. You know, obviously he's linked to, pro basketball in the Celtics, but he's a huge, he'll tell you he's a bigger college basketball fan than pro basketball. And obviously he knows basketball inside and out. And I think the thing that really struck me is that is the passion and, and that what you got from him is, you know, was and will be, cause he's going to continue to write is very genuine. It's not writing for effect like some guys do. And it's not necessarily writing, you know, to, you know, the one-liners and uh, trying to, you know, be a jokester or something like that. He really wanted to write to him, wants to write to inform him, kind of being careful of putting in the past test because he's not, you know, he, you know, he's not, he's given up the daily column, but he's still going to be writing 30 to 50 columns a year on Sundays. Right. Uh, knowing him, I probably will write more, you know, and he's still going to be on ESPN. So it's not like he's going away. He just wants to, you know, he's sick in his late 60s, and he wants doesn't want the commitment of having to write four columns a week and more power to him. I think a great career, 
and I feel very fortunate that uh, that I got to know him and spend some time with him. We, I wrote in my blog, I remember a very memorable night at Runyon's in New York with him and Jackie McCallum and Malcolm Moran. I'm not exactly sure even how we all came together. I think I was there to cover some Heisman ceremony, and I think they were in town for a basketball game, and we just happened to run into them. And I remember we just had this great conversation, and I remember Malcolm had lived in the suburbs and he had a train to catch, and he kept, like, putting it off. Oh, I'll catch the next one because we were having so much fun. I'll catch the next one. I think he finally caught like the 2.30 train. He probably stumbled in at 4 in the morning, you know. And that was the kind of, you know, largely because of Bob and, you know, because he's just such a great guy to be around. So I wish him the best and, and, and congratulate him on a great career. Ed, thank you so much for doing this today. There was going to be one more. I was going to ask you one more thing, but that it's just too perfect to end with that. So let's just end with that great story, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Okay, great. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate Thank you. It. Yep. All right, I want to thank our main man, Ed Sherman. Cass Mellis and Luke Wynn for being on the show today. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com and our blogs are thesportscasters.blogspot.com and thesportscasters.tumblr.com. Our website is www.sports-casters.com. You can find all that information and more. One last piece of business for today, we're going to uh, do pick four. Two weeks ago, uh, the game of the week was the 200-meter individual medley, and the three choices were Phelps, Lochte, or the field. I chose Phelps. That was a winner. Don chose the field. I'm glad to be wrong. That was a loser. Yep. Uh, I also picked the U.S. women's basketball team over Turkey. Easily won that. Uh, we both had Ben Sheets to beat the Marlins. It was his first loss for the Braves. We both lost that one. Uh, I had Breeze would lead the Saints to a touchdown in the Hall of Fame game, and he got one chance at it, drove the team all the way down to the one-yard line, and then Mark Ingram ran it in. Bastard. <laughs> so I finished 2-2. Two and two. It gives me a record of 73-52. and 52. Uh, Don won his host choice, which is the Reds over the Padres. Won that one 9-4. Like I said, he lost Phelps and Sheets. And I told him to pick Serena Williams winning two medals at the Olympics, but he picked Venus. She won one while her sister won two. Yeah, I read an article about her that day or something that was made me go with the Makes wrong Williams. Don 64 and 63 on the year, and that brings us to today. Yeah, today uh, we're going to go with kind of a random game of the week, but it's a good traditional rivalry. Yeah, we haven't done Red Sox-Yankees yet, and it's a Sunday night baseball game, so everyone can watch it if they want. Right, and really, what else are we going to pick at this point? The Olympics are over. Football hasn't started yet. So Sunday night, 8 p.m., ESPN, Yankees-Red Sox in New York. Give me the Yankees. Yeah, I'm going to take the Yankees, too. Beckett's pitching for the Red Sox, which made me think about picking them for a second. But Yankees in New York, Yankees have been a much better team than the Red Sox. who are in a little bit of disarray. There's a story today that the clubhouse is just out of control and that Valentine is probably going to get fired after yeah. one season. So I can't really find a great reason to pick the Red Sox, so I'm going to take the Yankees too. My winning pitcher this week, I'm going to go with Hugh Darvish of the you. Rangers. He pitches Friday 
at 7.07, very precise time against the Blue Jays. So give me you, Darvish. Not to be confused with W. Correct. Right. Uh, I'm going to pick Roy Halladay, who normally I would have picked by now, but he spent most of the season not pitching. Right. Uh, he's 6-6 six and six with a 3.80 ERA. And I'm going to take the Phillies over the Marlins, who are led by Mark Burley, who's 9-11 and 11 with a 3.80. Same ERA for both of those guys, but I'm going to take Halladay and the Phillies. In order to avoid taking a totally arbitrary baseball game this week, my host choice will be a totally arbitrary preseason football game with the spread, because we do football with the spread. We do. And uh, I looked at all the spreads of the football games. It's basically home team plus or minus three, except for in some one odd case where the We'll talk about that yeah. in a second. My, I'm going to go the Monday night football game uh, this week, which is Eagles-Patriots, which during the regular season will be a fun Monday night matchup, but who cares this week. Uh, the Eagles are getting three points on the road, and I'm going to take them plus the points for no good reason. The strange line this week is, for some reason, unlike everyone else, the Saints have to lay six and a half points yeah, to the Jaguars. Yeah, that's like a real-life line. Well, that real-life line would probably be more like 13. But. I'm not really sure why, but what the hell. I'm going to take the Saints minus six points over the Jaguars. That game's on Friday, the 17th at 8 o'clock. Go Saints. My totally happy, optimistic, uh, bold prediction this week is the NHL and the players we talked about during the course of the podcast – they the players have proposed their new CBA and it sounds very reasonable and I think it's probably too much to ask to get it done in a week but that's why these picks are bold I'm gonna say they wrap it up this week the NHL and the players get the CBA wrapped up you know I couldn't think of anything and we were talking about Chad Johnson earlier and if he's gonna get a chance to get into another camp it's gonna be this week you know like You'd have to think if he's going to latch on somewhere, they're going to want to do it quick so we yeah, have a few weeks to learn to play. Yeah, it's never. So what the hell? I'll say Chad Johnson will get another chance to make an NFL roster. So, Sure. He's part of the 90 next week or I lose. <laughs> That's going to do it for this week's show. One thing I want to say for next show is that because of our Football Nation show, which, by the way, this week we had Jeff Duncan from the New Orleans Times pick you, and you can find that at www.footballnation.com. I don't know how we missed that, doing that. That's right. But since we've been doing so much football on that other show, we haven't talked much football on proper lately, but we'll change that next week. Sure. And uh, Jim Trotter from Sports Illustrated will be on the yeah, show. Yeah, most of our football lately has been five on fantasy. but Yeah, so we will get some uh, a football guest on here next week. And maybe we'll do some hockey, too. We haven't done that in a while. Sure. All right. We'll be back next week. Don, you can cue the hip. All right. <laughs>